lunch on us and uh, just get to know you. Amen. And if nothing else, you get some free food and, and a free cup of joe. All right. Well, with all that said, oh, I do have an announcement. I'm sorry. Uh, we are going through the book, The Anglican Way by Thomas McKenzie. Uh, it has been a fantastic time of discussion on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. right here. We're still going to meet inside. We'll just do it with masks from now on, but right here in the building. And uh, the book is fantastic. I've read it before, but reading it through this time, it just feels a little bit more rich. And I guess it's because of the conversation that we're having about it. But it's just a book talking about this Anglican way of the faith, right? How we follow, we walk with Jesus, we walk with each other and with the cup of Anglicanism. So if you're interested in that, we're an Anglican church, what that means and you know all the ins and outs, Thomas McKenzie does a fantastic job of walking us through that and there's no doubt, I mean, come on, the guy's name is McKenzie, so we know it's gonna be fantastic. But it is a great book, great discussion. Please join us Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And if that's all, Today, brothers and sisters, we're going to be talking about something that may be a little difficult to hear. It was difficult for me to go through as I was going through this, uh, writing the sermon myself. And we're going to be talking about uh, a, a consumer or a consumeristic faith, a consumer faith. And when I say a consumer faith, what I mean, you'll see the definition pop up here. I mean having a faith or a walk with Jesus where we're more concerned about what we get from Jesus than who we get in Jesus. And the reality is all of us have been and are guilty of this at times. Right? More concerned what Jesus can do for us than who he is for us. And so today we're going to read a story about some people who themselves were more concerned with what they could get from Jesus, even in a manipulative, manipulative way, regardless of who he is. And my prayer for us is that we will recognize those places in our own life, in our own walk with Christ, where we too are prone to being consumers in this thing, right? And prayerfully, we find some ways that we can actually battle against this so that we can come to Jesus for who he is, and not just what he gives us. And so the question to keep in mind as we go through this is how do we follow Jesus for Jesus and not merely for the things that he gives us? And so we're going to read John chapter 6, verses 24 through, 25, through 35. We'll pray together and then we'll jump in. Some of you guys may have noticed that Drew and I are both wearing uh, shirts in the same color palette. Had, did you notice that? No? Stand up, Pastor Drew. Show him. Show him. We're, we're wearing the same. His is more like tuna, and mine is like salmon. Yeah. I'd love to say we planned that. We didn't. Everybody kept pointing it out, and I was like, our shirts are not the same color, but um, it is what it is. But we're going to read John chapter 6, verses 24 through 35. We'll pray together, and then we'll jump in. Beginning verse 24, it says, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, 
The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that, may, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me, friends. Dear God, I'm grateful that we get to be here together today. Lord God, I'm grateful for all your many kindnesses towards us. And this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd be pleased to be present with us in such a way that we are made aware of your goodness as you are above the things that you give. Lord, increase in our hearts in adoration for you as our glorious God, our merciful Savior, our glorious King that you are. And to from there rightly place the good things that you do and that you give us, let them not be above the gift that we have in just being with and even within you, our Lord. Lord, we love and we thank you so much. May your word come forth with clarity and may it accomplish in every heart and mind exactly what you sent it forth to do this morning. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise because you indeed are worthy and you alone. In your unmatched name, we ask these things, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. And amen. Amen. Well, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 people with five, loaves and two, uh, with five loaves of bread and two fish. And afterwards, he miraculously walks on water to the other side of the lake to a city named Capernaum. But how, right before we read of Jesus walking on the water and right after he feeds the 5,000 people. John tells us that the people, so impressed by Jesus' miracle, they seek to take Jesus and to make him their king by force. And that word that's translated by force here in the NIV actually carries the meaning of being captured, a forceful capture which essentially what they are seeking to do is make Jesus king whether he likes it or not. Last week we talked about the revolutionary nature of Jesus' kingdom and how it's nothing like the kingdoms of the world. Indeed, it's not a kingdom of the world. And so if Jesus, the revolutionary king of the revolutionary kingdom, if they had succeeded in making Jesus a king in their way, then Jesus would not have set up the kingdom that he was purposed to bring in the first place. What's crazy about this, though, brothers and sisters, is that later on in the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus is indeed forcefully captured at one point. 
And this time when he's forcefully captured and ultimately executed, it's so that they could stop him from becoming king. But little did they know that their attempt to capture and kill him was actually the means of bringing about this revolutionary kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what this tells me about the nature of the kingdom is that things in the kingdom are not always as they seem. In the kingdom, brothers and sisters, we will face some roadblocks, some hurdles, some difficult things. But what we see from Jesus' story and all throughout Scripture is that in the kingdom, God is always working out the difficult things for a greater good. When they tried to force him to be king, it didn't work. But then when they tried to stop him, the kingdom went forth anyway. In the kingdom, God is working out greater things than we could have ever imagined. Especially through the difficult things. So brother and sister, hold on. If you're wrestling with some difficult things and you're a member of this great kingdom, hold on. God is working it out for your good. And so as we get to our passage this morning, the people have finally crossed over to Capernaum. And they've crossed over because they're looking for Jesus. And they're looking for Jesus because there's still this matter of capturing him and making him king. They're persistent. They haven't forgotten about what they desired from Jesus. And when they find him, they ask him a very strange question. They say, Jesus, when did you get here? And that's a strange question because why does that matter? Why does it matter when Jesus got there? You, he came to Capernaum. You found him. Why does this matter? But their question isn't as much about when he got there as much as it is how he got there. You see, the people were what you want to call miracle chasers. And so when they ask Jesus, essentially, how did you get here? What they're trying to figure out is, Jesus, did, did, did you do another miracle? Did, did you, you must have walked on the water, didn't you? We heard, we heard about you doing things like that. And for them, it's validating. It's like, boy, don't we know how to pick him? We picked the right king. He's just a miracle-working machine, ain't he? Well, as is common with Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer the question that's posed, but he offers the answer that's needed. And so in verse 26, he says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, at first glance, this sounds a little bit confusing, right? Because wasn't the miracle of the bread and the fish, wasn't that in and of itself a sign? So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, Jesus is speaking about a sign in a slightly more literal way than we're thinking of um, as we read this. Um, earlier this past week, Nicole and I had, had the privilege of going to a concert for, um, for some of her uh, notable harp friends, and it was at the beautiful, the big uh, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta in Midtown. That 
place is grand. It is amazing. And while I was there, I needed to use the restroom. And so I asked the gentleman at the front desk, I said, where's the restroom? He said, well, go down this hall, turn left, you'll see a sign, it'll point you to the restroom, right? And so, of course, I went left, I went right, I went through the woods and over the bridge and, and, and over the, I mean, it was, it's a whole traversing of terrain there to get there. But I finally got there, right? Now, it's one thing for me to have found the sign pointing to the bathroom and followed that sign to the bathroom and at the bathroom relieved myself, right? That's one thing. It's all to, it would have altogether been a different thing if when I got to the sign that said bathroom this way, I thought it sufficient to relieve myself right there. Right? That would have been altogether a different situation, and I probably would not be here preaching to you this morning. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the people who sought to make him king were doing so not because they were following the signs that pointed him to being the king, the Messiah, but rather because they were satisfied with simply having the signs themselves. They're not heading to where the signs are pointing. Rather, they're stopping at the sign and say, hey, give me more signs. Give me more signs. Think of it this way. Imagine you're hungry and you go to McDonald's. And instead of going into McDonald's and getting food and actually eating, you go to the McDonald's sign. You sit there. And as hungry as you are, you're satisfied with just being next to the sign. Or imagine if there's an Atlanta, Atlanta Falcons game or Hawks game, a United game, and you go, you pay, you pay the fare, you, you get the ticket, and you go, and instead of going in and enjoying the game, you stop at the sign that says uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium or State Farm Arena, and you're just satisfied with being at the sign. Brothers and sisters, a consumer faith, a consumer Christianity is simply satisfied with a sign. If we are going to combat that consumer tendency and that we all have, we have to fight to not be satisfied by signs. Jesus does a lot of great things for us. This is definitely true. But these are just the things that are meant to point us to who he is. And so our first point this morning, brothers and sisters, is simply this. Don't settle for signs. Don't settle for signs. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to tell them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And what's fascinating is that even after he says this, they still don't get it. And they go on to ask, they say, what must we do to do the works that God requires. And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. I'm the one who satisfies to eternal life. I am what is better than the bread and the fish you ate. I'm the one that the signs are pointing to. I'm the one that God has sent. Listen, people, believe in me. 
And the next thing that these people say is just mind-boggling. Listen to what they say. They go ahead and ask them. They say, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread for heaven to eat. Brothers and sisters, do you get what they are asking? Can you see the hard-headedness that's going on here? They are literally saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, that's all good. You're the bread of life, eternal life, believe, all well and good. Whatever you say, listen, just give us some more bread. We're hungry. That's what we came to you for anyways. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what we are experiencing here is some immense kindness and patience from Jesus. Because I would have at the very least walked away, if not more things. He has already done exactly what they're asking. The very sign that they are asking for, he has just performed. Miraculously feeding them with bread and fish. And their response is, so what? Give us more. Friends, this is the epitome of a consumer faith being more concerned with what Jesus can do than who Jesus is. And listen, brothers and sisters, we all do it. We all do it, right? We ask Jesus for for a new car. We ask Jesus for the better-paying job, for a bigger house, whatever. And listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking Jesus for these things, and there's nothing wrong wrong with receiving or having these things. Jesus tells us to pray and to ask for what we need, ask for what we want from him. And Jesus does graciously respond to our prayers. But what's the problem here, though? What makes it consumer faith? Well, the problem arises, brothers and sisters, when Jesus' value is based on whether or not he does the things that we want him to do. But how do we fight against this? How do we fight against this tendency to be a consumer? Well, brothers and sisters, we must be reminded of the goodness of the gift giver and not just of his gifts. And regularly reminded. And let me tell you how this consumer thing happens in our lives. Because it happens to all of us. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. It happens to all of us at some point, right? This is how it happens. When you first become a Christian, when you first get saved, you first start walking with Jesus... You're just so keenly aware of the fact that you're a sinner, right? You're just so keenly aware of you don't bring anything to Jesus but your brokenness, right? You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? And you're all crying every Sunday, you know. You know, y'all, was that my, the only one that was like that, you know? You're just, you're just enamored by, oh, how can you love me, Jesus? I'm such, you know. And then you... You stop all the big sins, right? You stop all the big sins. You you get some Christian friends. You leave the other friends alone. You get super involved in church. And as time goes on, right, 
we go from it's all grace that we don't deserve to, man, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of deserving this grace. Man, I'm, I'm a lot more holy than I used to be. I ain't, I'm not doing those things anymore, Jesus. You know, Man, I think I'm paying you back a little bit for all that grace you gave me at first, right? And then eventually, that turns into, man, Jesus, I, I don't think you're holding up your end of the bargain. It kind of feels like I'm doing a little more work than you doing blessing right now. Like, I've been faithful, Lord, for a while now. And man, they, my car don't look like a faithful car, Lord. I got to tell you, you, you ain't doing it. And before we know it, we are convinced that Jesus is slacking on his job. The one who we couldn't believe loves us as much as he does is no longer worthy of our faithfulness and devotion to him. Friends, don't become a consumer. Don't settle for signs. All the good things that Jesus does for us, that he has done for us, are meant to point us to who he is, to and for us. None of these things were ever meant to be the end in and of themselves. Jesus is the means of our satisfaction. Jesus is the source of our joy and ultimate eternal life. Amen? Anything else will leave us utterly out down and out. But as I've said again, I suspect that the reason we forget this is because our Christian life moves. It morphs from trusting Jesus by faith to somehow being all about what we do for Jesus and what we do in his kingdom. Somewhere along the way, again, it happens to all of us. Somewhere along the way, our worth becomes based on how good we are and how righteous we've become, and that it becomes how we look at Jesus. If Jesus is looking at us and basing our worth on how good we are and how much good we do, it's only natural that we look back to him and say, same with you, Jesus. And this is why works righteousness is so dangerous. Works righteousness or, or trying to do things to get onto God's good side, it robs us of the joy of resting in the undeserved and unconditional love of our Savior. Brothers and sisters, the reason why works righteousness is the greatest enemy to our Christian faith is because without Without this faith being completely and purely about the grace that Jesus offers us that we don't deserve, it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. The reason why we can't see Jesus the way we should when we fall into this works righteousness is because it becomes this vicious cycle of us continuing to fail and then assuming then that God is failing us.
Works righteousness gets us into a place where our Christianity is all about what we don't do for God or do for God, which inevitably leads to us believing that God's worth is based on what, what he does or doesn't do for us when we want him to do it. This reminds me of something I heard in, in Rob Bell's um, NUMA series. And before you theologians jump down my neck, okay, I understand that Rob Bell has said some things in the recent past that are that's a little nerve-wracking for some of you. Okay, take a chill pill. It's all right. He said something one time that was true, okay? And in this NUMA series about 15 years ago, it was a series of DVDs, and I, I actually, as I was thinking about this, I just thought about, man, I am old. I'm just getting old, man. There were DVDs that you, we would trade in my dorm rooms. Like, oh, have you had this NUMA DVD? Have you had? But anyhow, in one of those videos, he talks about, if you don't know who Rob Bell is, he um, a pastor of a pretty huge church out west somewhere and um, wrote a lot of books, did these NUMA videos, and, and had some um, views that are not everyone agrees with. But um, in one of the NUMA videos, he talks about a woman driving into a, a very full department store parking lot. And when she drives into the parking lot, she happens to come up to the one free space that happens to be closest to the building. And when she gets into that space, she yells out, man, God is so good. And he uses that illustration to show how short-sighted her and our perspective on God's goodness can be at times. Right? that her perspective on God's goodness was based on whether or not she got a good parking space. And friends, this is still convicting for me today, as I'm sure it is for a lot of us. How often is God's goodness to us based on small things that cannot compare with the goodness he's given us and offers us in himself? Brothers and sisters, we have to be reminded, like the people in our passage this morning, that Jesus is not a genie. Jesus has not come to fulfill our every whim and whimsy. That is not in his job description. Jesus is God Almighty who graciously took flesh and died in order to receive in order to redeem us. And friends, we do not deserve him. We never deserved him and we never will. And this is why he's so good. Because he still offers himself as amazing as he is to us. He promises his love and his kindness to us despite how unworthy we are. But I ask again, how do we ensure that we're not settling for the signs? How do we guard against falling into this works righteousness, this consumer mindset that we tend to project onto Jesus? Well then, brothers and sisters, we have to spend regular time with Jesus. We just have to spend regular time with Jesus. One of the blessings, brothers and sisters, of the Bible, one of the many blessings of the Bible, is that the Bible reminds us of the things we so often forget. 
right? How many of us have the Bible memorized? None of us, right? And so it would make sense that we need to continue to go there and be reminded of the God that is therein. And often we simply forget about this Jesus, about the grace that saves us and keep us because we're not going to where, to this, where the story is told. We're not, be remind, we're not being reminded often enough. And, you know, there have been many times in my life, as I'm sure in yours, where I've been anxious about so many different things, right? I need this. I want this. Got to have this. I'm nervous about this. But when I get to spend some unhurried, unagended time with God in prayer and in the word and in contemplation, so many times I'm just sweetly reminded by Jesus that, hey, I got this. I'm just sweetly reminded that he has my family. He has my concerns. That he is enough. I am reminded that it is through grace, through his undeserved favor on my life, that he has ever loved me and has ever done or will ever do anything good for me. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2.8, that it is by grace, through faith that I have been saved, and not anything I've done. I'm reminded in 2 Timothy 2.13 that even when I am faithless and I struggle to believe his truth and goodness, he remains faithful and good to me. And it's through the reminders of his grace and of his love that I realize once again that Jesus is the prize. That Jesus is the end. Not what he does, but who he is. Because get this, brothers and sisters, signs won't save us. Signs will not bring us into right relationship with God our Father. Signs will not keep us through difficulty and trials. Only Jesus does that. The more we focus on the signs and things we want from Jesus, the more we will miss out on what Jesus ultimately offers us. And it's an amazing gift. It's himself. We have to spend regular time with Jesus, being reminded that he is enough. Don't be satisfied with the signs, but follow them to Jesus. And i like to close with the second and last point of application because what, I, what else I think we see happening in this particular passage that causes these people to have this consumer faith and often causes us to have that consumer faith is because our perspective on the kingdom is too short-sighted or too temporary. In other words, our perspective on the kingdom isn't eternal. And so another thing we have to do to combat consumerism, combat a consumer faith, fight a consumer faith, and I keep using these words like combat and fight because indeed it is a fight, brothers and sisters. It's something we all have to fight against. We need to think eternally. In verses 34 through 35, after Jesus explains that it was the Father who gave their forefathers the bread from heaven, the people ask Jesus to give him this bread, and Jesus responds... Again, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And of course, Jesus isn't speaking about physical food or physical hunger, right? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're constantly full. We need to eat. 
Somebody said amen. Somebody's thinking about eating right now, aren't you? Amen. Amen. You can go eat in a second. If we eat a meal right now, we know we'll be hungry at some point. Jesus is not speaking about physical hunger and thirst. Jesus is speaking in terms of eternity. He's speaking of once we've come to him, once we've taken of him, the eternal bread of life, we will have no other need for redemption or restoration with relationship with our Father. He is telling us that his love and his redemption that he wrought through his life and his body for us is everlasting. It is for sure. That once Jesus forgive us, we are forgiven indeed. That once Jesus frees us, we are free indeed. That once Jesus adopts us, we are sons and daughters of God most high, and that will never change. We need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has saved us for eternity. Jesus has saved us for heaven. And not just for heaven. Please don't get me wrong, especially you theologians. I understand there's some reasons here where it's to be saved. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, Jesus has saved us for eternity, for heaven, for existence with him forever. This place is not our home. And this should also inform our service to others. Sometimes I think that our service to others, when we do good things in the community and things, I think that sometimes it falls short because we lose focus of the eternity of those whom we serve. We are called, this is without question, we are called to care for the needs of others. This is necessary Christian kingdom work. It's not optional. We must care for others. We cannot call ourselves follow of Christ if we're not caring for others' tangible needs. But if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, we can fall into caring for people's temporary needs to the neglect of their eternal needs. Our serving in some way should point those we serve to Jesus. We should not be offering the things we do as signs to satisfy. They should point to Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we do things like give a gospel track. Every time we give someone a sandwich, give them a gospel track. You know, it doesn't mean dangling the gospel track carrot, you know, come to church. Come. You know, it doesn't mean we do those weird things. It just means that we are equally conscious about people's physical needs as we are their spiritual needs when we serve them. And this is also why faithful Bible preaching and teaching is so, so important. Because once we serve people in the name of Christ, it's important that we now paint a, a, a faithful picture of who this Christ is. They need to know who Jesus is because the food we offer will satisfy for a moment, but Jesus is the one who will satisfy into eternity. So brothers and sisters, don't settle for the signs and don't settle for just being a sign. Point people to Jesus. And don't just settle for the here and now, brothers and sisters. Think eternally. This is not our home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, friends.
Dear Lord, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for conviction. I thank you for how your word points us to the sufficiency that is in you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. Today, I pray as we turn our hearts and our minds to communion, as we are reminded of the fact that your body is indeed real food, your blood is indeed real drink that is nourishing us up unto eternal life, Lord God, that indeed all that we experience, all that we have in this life, the good gifts from you are indeed meant to point us to you. Continue, Father God, to bring us to yourself. Lord God, increase our adoration for you. Increase our affection for you, Lord Jesus. Give you the glory, 